If we are basing our sense of significant on our performance, then our significance is going to change based on how we behave that day. That means we'll be on a roller coaster for the rest of our lives. Hi everyone, I'm Annika, and this is the Tried and Truth Podcast. Welcome back everyone. Have you ever felt like life is falling apart? Have you found yourself searching for light on some of those darkest days? Feel like you've maybe been at the end of your strength wondering, why do I keep messing up? Why does everyone else seem to have it together and I don't? Well, let me introduce you to today's guest because she is here for you today. I know you're going to love her and feel like you've been friends forever after this episode, just like I did. Michelle Couchat is a three-time head and neck cancer survivor. She's a four-time author, international speaker, leadership and executive coach, and she is hanging out with us today. Cannot wait for you to hear what she has to share with you. You're going to find fresh hope and new perspective in this conversation. Take a listen. Michelle, welcome to the Tried and Truth podcast. <laughs> what a joy. I feel like we've had a conversation before this conversation even begins. And so I cannot <laughs> wait to just to get into this conversation and let all these listeners in on, on so much of the exciting stuff that, that you're up to and, and your life. And so let's just start by telling our listeners a little bit about you, who you are, what you're up to, because this is, I can't wait. Well, I, and you and I, Annika, before this even started, we like in about 10 minutes, we covered so <laughs> much territory. Like it was two women that have been locked up at home and finally got to meet another human. And we were just like, tick, 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 and talk, 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 talk. And oh my gosh, that was amazing. So it's fun for me. Now we get to invite your listeners in to be part of what, you know, we've been talking about. Okay. About me. I am, uh, I'll start with the personal. I'm a, a mom of, are you ready for it? Six kids. Six, oh my goodness. Um, ages 30, 29, 26, 16, 15, 15. So, uh, and my twin 15 year olds are about ready to turn 16 and then I'll have three 16 year olds. So I need everybody to like add me to their prayer list today. because <laughs> That is my reality. Um, so I have six kids. I'm married. I live in Colorado. Professionally, I am an executive coach. I work with CEOs and executive level leadership helping them to, you know, get the clarity that they need to lead really well, to develop their teams and to lead with purpose. And so I do that professionally, as well as I write books. I have my fourth book coming out here in just a short amount of time. And I travel and speak uh, internationally on the subject of faith and suffering and how we maintain a, a solid belief in a good God, even when life looks like it's falling apart. And that's really, it's not the message I would have chosen. <laughs> it's the message that chose me. And so this is wow. kind of where I hang out. It's talking about these complicated conversations about what does it look like to maintain that sense of groundedness in what we believe, even when everything around us is chaos. Oh, that's so good. So share with us a little bit about pieces of your story that okay. chose you to be the- <laughs> <laughs> That chose me. All right. And I'm going to give a very cliff notes version of this because it's, you know, it's, as you can imagine, I'm 51. There's a lot of life in that a period of time. Um, to give you context, I was raised in a home. Um, my parents, uh, my, I was born about nine, 10 months after my dad came back from Vietnam. So um, I entered the world as my dad was recovering from that and my mom recovering from that because that was a huge impact back then. Uh, and I was born in the middle of that kind of chaos context. But um, about six months after I was born, seven months after I was born, um, a friend of my dad, a coworker, invited him to church. 
And my parents went to church. And shortly after that, they came to know Jesus and became Christians and decided to follow God. So even though um, faith was a new thing for my parents, I really don't have any memories of my life without faith being a part of that. Um, and so I have this wonderful, rich history uh, of faith and growing up in the church. However, um, it wasn't always perfect. Uh, I, As I was growing up, I had this kind of belief that Christianity was all about doing the right things, not doing the wrong things. And if you do what's right and avoid doing what's wrong, then God is on the hook to give you a great life. Like he's going to give you the American dream. He's going to give you the life that you've always wanted. And so I worked very, very hard to be a good person, to follow the rules, to love God, all of that kind of stuff. And I assumed that meant that I was going to, you know, marry a Christian man, have a bunch of children and have a happily ever after, except that's not what happened. And so this is where I'll give you some Cliff Notes version. Um, I got married at 21, was in full-time ministry with my spouse, and then unexpectedly, after about six years, when I had a one-and-a-half-year-old, um, I watched my husband drive away for the last time, six days before Christmas. And just like that, I became a single divorced mom um, with no job. You know, we'd been in ministry. So what do you do, right? So I had to reinvent myself. I had to get a job um, in the corporate world, an eight-to-five kind of job to provide for my son. I was a single mom and sole provider now. Um, as I worked through that whole process, and you can imagine the faith struggles with that, um, I kind of got over the hump of that. I met a man at the church I attended. He was a single dad. We thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun to get married and have this perfect, happy family? And yet I learned very quickly after we got married that step family doesn't look at all like a traditional family. It comes with a lot of complication and pain and, and hardship. You can't take all that brokenness and put it together in one house and expect everything to go smoothly. So then I wrestled through just the challenges of, of blended family with three boys, you know, and um, still grieving the loss of my first marriage. About the time I thought I'd go over the hump of that, um, I uh, had gone to a doctor because I had a sore on the side of my tongue that would not heal. And we all get those. So it was no big deal. I was young. I was active, healthy. Um, but, you know, we needed to get it healed because it was painful. And on a Tuesday before Thanksgiving in 2010, I found out that I had the doctor call me and said that I had squamous cell carcinoma of the tongue, which is cancer of the tongue. Now, I didn't even know something like that existed. And <laughs> here I am, a 39-year-old mom of three boys. Um, I ran half marathons. I did triathlons. I was healthy. I ate healthy. I never smoked. You know, I had no risk factors. And here I was, I found out I had cancer and nobody could explain to me why. Uh, and so all I have to say that first diagnosis uh, ended up, even though it was incredibly emotionally difficult, ended up being the best case scenario with cancer. And the doctor said, we got it all. You have nothing to worry about, except they were wrong. And cancer came mm. back a second time three years later and came back a third time about eight months after that. And so I ended up having the same cancer three different times. By the last time I had it, it was so advanced that they had to take out two thirds of my tongue. They had to cut open my neck about eight inches, take out um, my lymph nodes, my submandibular gland, blood vessels to kind of try to rebuild a functional tongue so I could eat and speak and swallow and all of that also cut open my arm, wrist to elbow again, to 
kind of basically what they were doing is I was kind of a humpy dumpy and they had to do all kinds of different skin grafts and um, blood vessel grafts and things like that for me to be able to have some kind of functionality if I survived cancer. Um, after the surgery, it was a nine hour surgery where they did that. They gave me about four weeks to recover, including the stay in the ICU. And then after that, they uh, started really intense chemotherapy and external beam radiation. And I won't go into all the gory details, but when you start shooting radiation at the face and the neck, the head and the neck, it's it's a whole different ballgame. It's um, pretty brutal. By the time all was said and done, and this was many, many months of treatment and recovery, um, I had uh, burns from nose to chest, radiation burns from nose to chest on the inside and the outside of my, my head and neck. I had scars on my arm, my leg, my neck, obviously in my mouth. Um, I had a feeding tube for six months. I had a tracheostomy to keep me from choking for two months. And um, and I was utterly crushed in body and spirit. I mean, I was just on the brink. Uh, and doctors even said, you know, we had to take you to the brink of death in, in the hopes of maybe saving your life. Uh, on the other side of that, and, you know, I haven't even mentioned the fact that in the middle of my last two cancer diagnoses, my dad was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer and died. We foster adopted three kids with a history of abuse and neglect. Uh, and they were twin four-year-olds and a five-year-old. We had church conflict. We had lost jobs, career changes, moves. We had all these things in the middle of all of this. And so by the time I got to the other side of this third cancer diagnosis, when I'm on the brink of death, I'm wrestling with, wait a second, I have followed Jesus my whole entire life. I've mm. tried really hard to be a good person and to do what's right and look at my life. I mean, I've had loss after loss, grief after grief, and I may not even live. So what do I do with that? How do I, how am I to be a mom, a wife, a woman? a person of faith, a professional, when it appears that God either has completely abandoned me or he's mad at me. Like, I, what is this all about? It felt like literally my world was falling apart and it was in many ways. And so that's kind of what has led me to this season of my life where I'm hanging out with people in those places because I get it. I get what it feels like to be at the, at the complete end of your strength and to not know up from down anymore, to not know for sure what you believe anymore. Wow. I feel speechless. Like that story <laughs> is incredible. Uh, you know, which kind of leads me to the fact that you've just written a book called A Faith That Will Not Fail. Mm -hmm. And as you look back and reflect on all of this, being able to put a book out into the world of your mm -hmm. story about a faith that didn't fail mm -hmm. despite all of this. Tell us a little bit about yeah. what kind of launched you into how do I put this into words mm -hmm. in a book? Well, some of it is, is when you're in this place of what feels like complete and utter darkness, right? And so, uh, you know, if you live long enough, this is going to sound like really bad news, but if you live long enough, you're going to hit a point where things feel really dark and difficult. 
um, suffering is one of those things that's inescapable in the human experience. And, and uh, many of you who are listening already know that. Some of you just haven't yet had some hard things happen. But like I said, if you live long enough, hard things are going to happen. Uh, even what we've gone through as a nation and world um, with the pandemic and the wars and all of the tensions and political upheavals and everything else, um, that alone has shaken us up. I mean, we're in a mental health crisis in the United States right now. There's so many articles that we are in a hardcore mental health crisis. This is evidence of the fact that we've, we're there. We're in that place where we're like, this is hard. This is really, really hard. When I was in that dark place, I, you know, part of the challenge of pain and suffering is that you feel alone. Suffering creates an aloneness, right? So when you're in pain, if you're grieving something, dealing with something hard, you feel alone. And so my hope with this book or even my ministry is to step into those places and to help those who feel that they are the only one that's at the end of the rope say, nope, you're not alone. I'm with you, but even better than me being with you, God is with you. He hasn't left mm. you. I know it feels like he has, but he has not left you. He is with you in the darkest places. It's really good. So I know in the book, you talk a little bit about certain principles that I'm, mm -hmm. I'm guessing or maybe assuming that those are some principles that you've kind of held to throughout your experience. Would you share just like one or two of those principles with us that have really helped you to sustain that? Yes. Yeah, so in this book, I chose 10 practices. You know, the subtitle of the book is 10 practices to build up your faith when your world is falling apart. Uh, you know, as a Christian, somebody who has a really good, strong faith history, which is my history, there are certain things that I heard all the time. You need to read your Bible every day. You need to pray every day, all these things. I wanted to really identify as I have been going through this, you know, basically a 30 year season of significant loss what were the things that actually helped me? Like, what were the things that practically speaking, when I was in my hardest moments, really did help me keep my head above water during that time? And so uh, so the practices that I chose are somewhat not conventional. Like, they're, some of them are surprising. And what I attempted to do is first identify what I actually used, what was helpful to me, but two, choose practices that also had a biblical basis, but that we may didn't know about. So, you know, some of those practices are things like the practice of lament. As a church and even in our culture, we don't do a great job of giving people space to have big feelings, right? Mm -hmm. So many times we want people just to buck up and pull themselves together and put a smile on their face and pretend like everything's fine. But, you know, the mental health crisis we're in in the United States is evidence of the fact that that's not working very well for us. What if instead we need to be able to give voice to our grief? That doesn't mean we sit around and just um, commiserate, you know, sit in misery for weeks and months and years, but to acknowledge the fact that this is hard and the circumstances are not fair and I'm in pain, I'm hurting. And the practice of lament is throughout the whole Bible, this idea of being able to simultaneously acknowledge the painful reality of our circumstances while still believing in the hope of God that he will someday redeem it all. And that's why you know, that practice of lament was important for my healing. I couldn't put a smile on my face and pretend like everything was fine. I was grieving. I was in significant pain and suffering. And I needed to tell the truth about that. And allowing myself to have space to do that is actually a big part of helping me heal. That's really good. And I know one of the things you talk about in your book is 
in those moments of deep pain, we forget. Yes. We forget. And I was reading the other day and I, I didn't know this, but I, I learned that the word remember is listed over 200 times in scripture. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think that's, that's a really important mm-hmm. thing too, that you, you share a little bit about in your book is this idea of we forget. Yes, we do. do. The practice. So one of the 10 practices is the practice of perspective. And a big part of perspective is remembering. It's remembering if God was faithful before, he will be faithful again. And so when you're in this place where it seems like it's so dark and that God has left you to go back in the timeline of your life and look for evidences of the ways that he has been faithful. And rather than forgetting that, let those remembrances of God's faithfulness become a way to re-anchor today's perspective, right? The same God that has always kept his promises will still keep his promises today. And I may not know how that's going to happen. I may not know what that's going to look like, but I can count on that. And that practice of perspective helps me stay grounded and anchored even when things feel like they're falling apart. I love that. That's really good. Just a visual too of the anchor, Mm -hmm. anchoring ourselves in that. Um, so as, as you have written this book, as you've gone through a lot of these things, as you, mm-hmm. um, in your, you know, day life of coaching people, right. You're coming yes. alongside of people who are in it, who have yet to be in it, who have gone through it. I'm sure that you are walking alongside of a lot of people who are in a rocky spot and who are having mm-hmm. doubts. Like, how do you come alongside of people who, feel like they're in a place where faith is Mm -hmm. failing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing I want to point out, so I work with a lot of high-level leaders, so people that are CEOs, business owners, executives, people that on the outside look like they have it all, Mm. okay? This is so important because I can tell you, I'm the one that's hanging out with them behind the curtain, and every single one of them is just as human, just as flawed, struggling just as much as the rest of us. Right? Oh, yes. And that's Keep going. Really Say Im- that again. <laughs> Everybody. That is really important. Everybody. This is so important for us to remember because we think that we're the only one that can't seem to get it together. That everybody else is, they're just nailing it. And we're the ones that are failing. Not true. I mean, again, these are the people I'm working with are making tons of money. They're, they have so much success. They are well-known. They are, you know, they look like they're killing it. And yet behind the curtain, they're human and insecure and afraid and struggling just like I am, just like you are. And I think that's so, that's so critical for us to remember that, that, that the way that we are more similar than we are different. And, and this struggle is not just unique to me. It's actually a struggle of the entire human race. This need to find security and meaning and purpose in spite of our circumstances. So how do I come alongside people in that? One, you know, part of this is us being willing to be vulnerable. Like you and I, we got to start telling the truth about the fact that it's hard. It's hard. I mean, you and I, our conversation before we started recording, a lot of things, we were talking about being moms and how hard it is. Yeah. And um, I have six kids. I've been parenting for almost three decades. And most days I feel like I'm terrible at it. Like it's just being a mom is the hardest thing. And I feel like I fail more than I succeed. 
I feel like I say I'm sorry more than anything else. Mm. And this is so important for us to be able to be vulnerable about that and say, I do not feel like I'm just laying the mother thing. I do not. I feel like I really struggle. I'm still learning. I tell people the reason I have six kids is not because I'm good at it. It's because God knew I needed more practice. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I'm right there with you. Although, (laughs) Although I'm okay if there's no more kids. (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't advise if you don't have to. Yeah. So, you know, that vulnerability is so critical. I talk in the book too, about the practice of community. We cannot endure real life in isolation. We cannot do it. This is why it's so great that you have this podcast, Annika, because it's a way for you to create community that's accessible to anyone, regardless of geography. And those of you who are listening, you know that that's why you're here. Because you needed the vulnerable community of people who can tell you, hey, you're not the only one that is struggling with this. Uh, We need to do this for each other. It's not just for ourselves. It's for each other. When I can honestly say motherhood has been a real challenge for me, and I can admit that, all of a sudden, 10 other people in the room go, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm not the only one. But we, somebody has to go first. Somebody has to be brave enough to peel back the curtain from the perfect Instagram images and the perfect YouTube videos to show this is what it's really like. It's a challenge, but we're not alone. We can do this together. So for people that you that you work with and that you coach and that you've kind of seen go through this who are natural introverts, <laughs> what's like how how do you encourage them to maybe let down their guard a little bit or do life with people? When mm-hmm. all they want to do is like, I'm with people all day long. All I want to do is not be with people, but yeah. you know, that's actually what they need. Yes. How do you, how do you, like, what do you tell them? Well, you know, I think it's partly being strategic. People assume that I'm a raving extrovert. I'm actually not. Um, I, I, I'm an ambivert. I'm right in between, but I refuel alone. So at the end of the day, I would much rather be alone than go out and be with people. Um, but I also recognize that. Uh, if I isolate, that's going to actually cause me more harm than good. And so for me, I'm always gauging, am, am I isolating and self-protecting or am I spending time because I just need to do some self-care? I need to do something to take care of myself. But I intentionally have places where I'm forcing myself to engage in community. So I have a women's Bible study that I'm a part of. I have another friend that I go out to dinner with at least once a month, Um, you know, those kind of things. So I know they're on the calendar and it keeps me from the temptation to completely isolate and self-protect and kind of stay in my bubble. Um, So I would suggest, you know, just kind of pay attention to yourself. Am I doing this because I'm afraid? Am I staying home isolating because I'm afraid of connection or I'm doing it because I need the self-care tonight? And if I do the self-care tonight, then I'm going to engage with community in this way tomorrow. Well, that's a good reminder. A good, a good truth right there. Yeah. Identifying the things that, you know, that are fear-driven versus life-giving. I think that's mm. the practice that we need to do. Am I, am I making this decision um, because of fear that fear is driving this decision or am I doing this because it's giving me life? And being able to identify that and get more and more clear about what is what is delivering life and what is fear-based is really important to help us make proactive, um, conscious, intentional decisions about what is good for our soul and our body and our mind versus doing things out of fear. 
It's really good. Um, I want to unpack something that you share in the book because um, okay. I'm just, I'm, I'm, yes, the, what it said is just really interesting to me, but you talk about this idea that shame steals significance. Yeah. And I, I think in a world where you mentioned this a little bit ago, like everybody's looking for the same things, that significance, mm-hmm. that purpose. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you have found of just this idea around the shame that robs yes. that sense of purpose? Yes. Uh, this has been a not, this has been a life a lifelong struggle for me. So, um, and without going into too much detail, um, I've been in some relationships where shame was used to control. So, if you've ever been in a relationship with a friend or a coworker or a boss or a spouse or a parent or whatever, where they use negative words or criticisms as a means to control behavior, right? It's really easy then to assume rather than, um, you know, having a secure identity to assume that I'm bad. You know, I'm a bad person. I'm a, or let's say you have a day where your mothering isn't the best that it could be. You lose it. And you go from being, boy, I had a bad day to being, I'm a bad person. Right. And when we start going to this um, this narrative where we assume that we are bad, that there's something horrible about us, that we are unworthy, that we are unlovable, that is in direct opposition to what God says about us, right? In Isaiah 43, you are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. That's what God says about us. You are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. Um, that's truth. Shame, however, says, nope, you are bad, you are horrible, you are unlovable. Nobody else would love you. Nobody else would put up with you. Um, Those are indirect. We've got truth over here. You are precious and honored in my sight, and we have no, you are bad, you are awful. Those are in opposition to each other. And what God is trying to say is you are significant because you are made in my image. Shame is like, no, you are an, an accident. You are a mistake. And so what we have to do is identify when that shame message is robbing us of the significance that God has already declared over us. Yes, we are, you know, yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we sometimes blow it. But there's a difference between us having a bad moment or a bad day or making a bad decision and us being at our core bad. But if we are made in the image of God, if if we are um, uh, fearfully made, as Psalm 139 talks about, that he that we are made, that we are woven together. If that is true, then we need to sit very grounded and confident in that identity because that identity isn't based on our performance. It's based on our position as a child of God. If we are basing our sense of significance on our performance, then our significance is going to change based on how we behave that day. That means we'll be on a roller coaster for the rest of our lives. However, if we can get grounded on the fact that our identity is in our position as a child of God, that doesn't change. Even though our behavior may change, our position is secure. And maybe just kind of think of that anchor analogy that you gave earlier of just anchoring ourselves on that truth. So when all the waves come and the lies come and all the feelings come, um, but also just made me think of like anchoring myself on that truth as a mom um, and mm-hmm. giving my kids that anchor too, because I think sometimes we don't realize that as a parent, we we shame our kids when things don't go the way that they should. Um, and so, you know, I think just being very aware or increasing my awareness of the truth that they're anchored on mm-hmm. and the negative power of shame and how I parent um, and how I, I love my kids. So 
Thank you for yes. that. That's a really good visual for me to hold on to today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, we struggle with it. So it's not surprising that it would impact our mothering. Yes. Right? So if we struggle with a sense of shame, of course, it's going to impact the way we parent. And so that's why it's so critical that you and I individually get grounded in this truth of our significance, because until we're grounded, we can't mother from that place, right? So we have to get grounded. And then when our kids have a bad day, because they're going to, right? We know this, they're going to misbehave and do bad things and all that. We can say, you know what? You are so loved. Yes. You are so treasured. God adores you. This decision was not good. In fact, this decision wasn't representative of who you are. So let's work on that, right? Who you are is beautiful and incredible and chosen by God. But this over here, what you did, that doesn't look like that. So let's talk about that. What what happened to cause you to behave in a way that's contrary to your identity, who you are, and help them process through that. If we can give them that skill to live grounded and, you know, it's okay for them to feel guilty about bad things. Guilt is not a problem. Shame is a whole different thing, right? And we don't want them to live in shame. We want them to live confident in their identity in Christ. Yeah, so true. Okay, so as I'm curious, as a mom of six kids, three teenagers, <laughs> uh, oh and we gosh, talked about me. this earlier, <laughs> this like boy clump on the front end of the three yeah. boys, um, and now, you know, here going through so much that we've gone through authoring the books, coaching all these individuals yep. um, along the journey. Is there something that you feel like you wish you would have known sooner for all of us who are listening um, mm. that you just feel like, gosh, I just, I wish I would have known this or realized this truth earlier in, in this journey. Uh, yes. And this may even sound a little fluffy, but it's so critical and it's so, uh, it's so powerful. I wish I would have understood that um, God actually likes me. Mm. You know, that he's not sitting up there going, well, I had high hopes for her, but she's really missing the mark. I wish I understood that God really, when he looks at me, that he is moved by love and compassion and kindness. He's still holy. He's still, you know, all of those things, but that he doesn't look at me with disappointment, that he looks at me with love and grace and compassion and kindness. That right there, if I would have understood that earlier, it would have changed a whole lot of the way that I mothered, the way that I operated, my fear-based achievement, my need to always try to prove myself that I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, all of that. I could have rested a little bit more in the fact that, you know what? I don't know why, but God loves me. It's crazy, but it's true. This is so radical. And I'm guessing there's a few people listening that are like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. God loves me. No, I don't think we really get that. Because if we really understood the fact that the God of the universe truly loves us radically, wildly, unconditionally, extravagantly, it would change how we operate. Mm. It would change how we wake up and face each day. It would change how we respond and react to hard situations. I mean, that would be so anchoring. So that's the one, that's probably the biggest thing that I wish I knew. Um, coupled with the fact that you ready? This is the other part of that. It's okay to make mistakes. Yeah. Um, I am such a perfectionist. I think it comes from me being a firstborn female. I'm such a perfectionist. I want to do things right all the time, every time. 
uh, and I um, did not give myself permission to make mistakes. And as a result, it made me a highly um, critical and at times controlling person, right? Those of us that feel so much pressure to do it right can be critical and controlling. I just raised my hand. Nobody else has to raise their hand, but that's that's just the reality. I'm raising my hand. <laughs> I'm just telling the truth. Um, if I would have understood um, the fact that um, failure is actually, mistakes are actually a fantastic classroom. In fact, we learn far more from our mistakes than we learn from our perfections. Also, mistakes make us approachable. They make us compassionate. They add humility to the way that we live. Um, and it's not that we want to go out and intentionally make mistakes, but I wish I would have understood that a mistake is not the worst thing that could happen, okay? My mistake is not the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen is my own arrogance and pride and um, hard heart. That is the worst thing that could happen. And my mistakes actually make me softer, teachable, humble, able to learn from God and the people around me that that is actually a part that makes me human. And that would have been, gosh, I wish I could go back 30, 40 years and have understood that. I have a, a phrase that I have on a post-it note that I often keep by my computer as a reminder. And it came from a, a counselor of mine that I've had for 12 years um, who reframed this for me. I went into a, a counseling appointment several years ago and I just felt like I was failing. And I'm like, gosh, I blew it. I failed. I'm so mad at myself. She goes, can we, can we um, reframe that? She goes, rather than telling yourself that you're failing, why don't you say I'm learning? That's good. And so I put those two words on a post-it note to remind myself, guess what? I'm learning. I didn't know that before. I know it now. I'm learning. And so then all of a sudden now, even my mistakes and failures become a classroom that helped make me a better woman, wife, mother, um, professional, all of it. Um, and that it's not wasted. That's so encouraging. And I hope for anyone who's listening that they find just freedom in that today. I feel like we all just need to take that deep breath and say, I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm learning. Whatever yeah. the office or home or the conversation held for you this morning that just left you feeling depleted or discouraged or defeated, just tell yourself, I'm learning. Mm -hmm. I'm learning. Oh, that's so good. Um, okay. I want to ask um, one additional question before my final question. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> sorry, I feel like I have so many, so many questions. Um, oh, no, it's okay. I love it. Okay. This is a great conversation. This is the kind of stuff that I wish I would have had 30 years ago, right? Uh, to be able to listen to this and it would have been so helpful to me. Tell us everything that you've ever known. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, you know, I think that we're all, you mentioned this earlier, we're all going to go through hard seasons and our hearts yep. are all going to look different, which doesn't yes. mean that they're not just as hard, right? We're all going through something hard right now. And I think we just, we need to put that out there too. Cause I think sometimes people feel like, well, I, I don't want to talk about it cause it's not as hard as what you're going through. And so I'm going to pretend like it's all good but it's hard. And so I think it's in these hard, yeah. seasons of hard, how do you differentiate between like holding on to truth versus this idea of toxic positivity where I'm just going to yeah. tell myself good things just to muster through yeah. there? Well, and there is value to talking positive, right? We do have to understand that 
how we speak to ourselves impacts how we feel. So there is some truth to the fact that we need to be cognizant of the narrative that we speak and that we think, right? Those narratives are important. However, you know, there are verses in the Bible that talk about rejoice in all things, you know, be thankful in all circumstances. And so we think that means that we need to, oh, I have cancer. Thank you, God, that I have cancer. No, that's not what it means. That's, that's, um, um, that's kind of cruel and heartless and not even honest, okay? I, that's not what God's asking you to do. This idea, and there's in 1 Thessalonians 5, I believe, it talks about rejoice in all things. It's so important that when we read that, when Paul wrote that, he didn't say rejoice for all things, but rejoice in all things. And so what that is, is the ability to hold in tandem the hard reality of our circumstances and the hope that we have in redemption through God right? And we hold them simultaneously. We often think that um, acknowledging the hardness of our circumstances is mutually exclusive to having joy, that we can't have both at the same time. These are not separate experiences. They're simultaneous experiences. It is possible to say, I am so sad. I am so heartbroken. I'm so angry, or I'm, I'm hurting so much. And I believe God is real and good and can be trusted. You know, Job talks about this. We always talk about the suffering of Job when we think of people who have gone through hard things. And Job is filled with him lamenting his circumstances. And yet in the middle of that, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Okay, this is an example of the simultaneous nature of lament and worship. And that's what it looks like to to stay hopeful without going to toxic positivity or toxic negativity, right? We want to be able to be in that place where there's simultaneous, not separate experiences. I love the idea of both and in so many different capacities. Yes. And so to hear it in this context and at a, a friend on the podcast a few weeks ago who talked about how they teach you both and or this yes and idea in improv comedy, which is kind of funny, but yes. just that this idea that you can have, you know, both and or hold mm -hmm. space for both and in so many areas of your life. And so just to see this in a different context or to learn about it in a different context is, yes. is really fascinating. God is a God of both and. He really is. It's grace and truth. It's consequences and redemption. It's it's both, you know, he, he's able, he's the only one that's able to hold those perfectly together. The grace and truth component where you are sinful, you are, you know, you are sinful and separated from God, and I'm going to make a way for you to be with me forever. And that's the grace piece. And, and this um, lament and worship is just a continuance of his nature. Think of, you know, uh, Jesus before he died on the cross, you know, he was grieving in the garden and asking God, please, if there's another way, make it so I don't have to go through this hard thing. That was lament. And at the same time, he also knew that this was needed for the ultimate salvation of all of us. And so he said, okay, but not my will, but yours. And that was the combination of lament and worship all at the same time. And if Jesus, who was perfect, could do that, we can do it too. Yeah, we can do it too. Okay. So my favorite question that I ask on every episode, um, and I'm very curious to hear yours because it's all around this oh. idea of success. So you've achieved okay. success in a lot of different areas of your life, but you've also worked with very successful people as an executive coach mm -hmm. who have, you know, achieved what a lot of people would define as, you know, worldly success. Uh -huh. So I'm just curious, what is your definition of, of success? 
of success. That's so, it's such a good question because I actually asked my clients that. What does success look like for you? I ask all of them because not everybody thinks success looks like making $300,000 a year. Success looks like, you know, whatever, getting this certain job or position. Um, and so I ask them quite often, what does success look like for you? Because I think that's really important for all of us to be able to identify that. So here's my answer. Success for me looks like being able to live wholly, wholeheartedly as the person that God has made me to be in every environment that I go into. So not fragmented, not full of shame, not trying to pretend, not trying to be what the people around me want me to be in that moment, but to be actually wholehearted right here, right now, knowing that when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. That means even though I'm not perfect, the work he has done is complete. And I can live wholeheartedly in that in this moment. Love it. I love it. I also love our mutual love for the mountains. Yes. For math. <laughs> yes, <that too. laughs> yes. So all, all the, all the things and for learning our mutual love, just for learning and seeing life as just this, yes. this journey of experiences that we get to learn. We're from. basically, we're basically twins separated yes. by about like 20 years. <laughs> oh, I've just loved this conversation so much. I'm so grateful for you sharing and, um, and, and for this book, I can't wait for, for people to go check it out. Um, I would love for you just to share where people can find you to, yeah. whether that's for coaching resources or for the book or just to follow mm -hmm. along, um, the podcast, everything you have. You got it. Well, the easiest place to find me is my website, which is michellekashat.com. It's um, Michelle with one L. We already talked earlier about my name is spelled weird. Michelle with one L, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, -E, and Kashat with two Ts. I'm sure you'll have a link for everyone, but that's the easiest place to go. On my website, there's a tab for coaching if you want more information about coaching. There's a tab for speaking if you need a speaker at an event. I love talking about resilience um, in the workplace, but also what resilience and faith looks like. Uh, and then there's also a tab for the new book that's coming out where you can get freebies and resources. I actually have a free preview. You can download and read part of the book and decide if it's for you or not. So all of that's on my website. You can find it there. Didn't that conversation feel like we were all in the same room with a close friend having such an honest conversation about life's ups, the downs, and everything in between? So good. I'm sure you had a handful of takeaways, but just in case you missed any of them, here are this week's truths and takeaways. Number one, if you've ever felt like you're at the end of your strength and did not know up from down anymore and didn't know what you believed anymore, know that you weren't or maybe you aren't alone. Number two, let's allow ourselves and those we love the space to feel big feelings and to lament. Number three, how can you implement the practice of perspective today? Go back and look for evidence of the ways that he has been faithful and let those remembrances of God's faithfulness re-anchor you today. Number four, vulnerability is so critical. We cannot endure life in isolation. Somebody has to go first. Somebody has to be vulnerable. And I truly hope that you find that in this podcast. Number five, nobody has it all together. Number six, don't let shame steal your significance today. Number seven, let this conversation remind you today that God actually likes you. And number eight, we're not failing. We're all learning. Mistakes are actually a fantastic classroom. Michelle says, in fact, we learn far more 
From our mistakes that we learn from our perfections, they make us approachable, they make us compassionate, and they add humility to the way we live. Well, I'd love to hear what resonated with you, what you felt encouraged or inspired by. So send me a DM on Instagram or email me at hello at AnnikaFisher.com or leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share your feedback there. You can click on the show name, scroll down, and you can see all the details there on how to leave a review. Thanks for tuning in to this week. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. You don't want to miss out on any of the life-giving conversations yet to come. Thanks for spending your time with me today. And until next time.